perhaps this week you tried to get a hold of me via email. Our computer's out. <laughs> so if I did not respond to you, <laughs> we have no computer. We can't turn the rascal on even. But anyway, uh, Talis has promised he will fix my computer, so we're, we're good there. But Lori told me that there was an earthquake shortly in Northern California today. The Oddies. You know the Oddies? You know where they are? Northern California. You know where the earthquake was? Northern California. 6.0. That's, that's a good size one. So <laughs> some southern folks might experience an earthquake. So that'll, that'll be interesting. But anyway, Exodus chapter 16. We'll be looking at verses 31 through 36. And we'll also look at chapter 17. God has provided manna uh, for Israel, a miracle of provision, and he's provided it six days a week for 40 years. Manna for the first few days was probably unique, and then it turned into weeks, and then months, and then years and you know they grew accustomed to manna, and manna became a staple in Israel's diet for sure. Manna had every nutrient that was needed for daily life, because in Psalm we read that manna was angels' food. Consider that now. I never really thought much about angels needing food, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, they're spiritual beings created, you know, by God. But eating, when angels would come and sometimes have a meal with people here on earth, eating seemed to be a recreation for them. And... And they would partake of human food, but now Israel gets to partake of angel food out in the wilderness. And for 40 years, Israel will eat angel's food. Makes me wonder, was it gluten-free? Just, I just get concerned about those things. But manna, again, had all the nutrients needed in a diet. But, you know... Anything that you eat over and over, day in and day out, it becomes ordinary after a while, even if it's angel food. You can bake it, you can boil it, you can dice it, you can slice it. It's still manna. <laughs> Which made me think, a lot of you folks don't appreciate grits. And seriously, some of you do not know how to eat them. Just a little butter, that's all you need on grits, nothing else. <laughs> but manna is given, and then God says, I also want to give Israel one day a week to rest. And a Sabbath is then required of God for all of Israel. Required. A day and a time where Israel was to reflect upon God's goodness to them. Now, I... I recommend getting quiet before the Lord. 
I recommend daily devotions. But getting quiet, taking that rest before the Lord, I think is essential. I think we should have a time where we just sit before the Lord quietly without praying, without reading the scriptures, just a time of silence before the Lord, allowing God to speak to us whatever he would like to speak to us. Our devotions are to be like the gathering of manna. They're to be done on a daily basis. They could not gather manna for an extra day except on the day before the Sabbath. And our devotions, you can't give God an hour on Monday and let that cover you for the week. You need to give him devotions each and every day. Now, as a pastor, sometimes I hear comments alike, well, you only work on Sundays. Hey, got a pretty good job. <laughs> That's all I can say to you. But we have God who is establishing behavior patterns with Israel. Israel has just come out of 430 years of slavery in Egypt and they need constructive behavior patterns, and God has given them these patterns. Their newfound freedom needs some discipline after being slaves for all of their lives. Here in America, after the Civil War, many slaves returned to their masters because they didn't know what else to do. And so many slaves went back to their masters because they didn't have any other skills or didn't know any other lifestyle. I had an ex-prisoner once tell me prison life was easy. Prison life scares me. <laughs> I can't imagine being locked up in a cell, you know, day after day and so forth. But he began to explain. He says, in prison... All the decisions are made for you. They tell you when to eat. You eat every day at this time. They tell you when to go into the yard and have exercise, and you do that same time every day. They tell you when you even shower, and they tell you when the lights go out. Everything is regimented and decided for you in prison. My mother would have made a good warden. She lived by the creed, idle time, idle hands is the devil's workshop. So us kids had our chores. I think it bothered her if we had playtime, to be honest. But anyway, God has established a seventh day, a day of rest, and he says, you need it, Israel. And you know, you and I need it also. We need a day of rest. God rested on the seventh day, and we also need to have a day of rest. So let's pick up in Exodus 16, verse 31. And the house of Israel called its name manna. And it was like white coriander seed, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. Then Moses said, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Fill a omer with it. And let it be kept in, for all generation, 
then that they may see the bread which I have fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, Take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came into the inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Cana. Now Omer is one-tenth of an ephah. Now you needed to know that. How could you prepare your meals without knowing an omer is one-tenth of an ephah? Basically, it's five pints, by the way. Let's move to chapter 17. Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out their journey from the wilderness of sin according to the commandment of the Lord and camped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. And the Lord said to Moses, Go on before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel. Also take in your hand the rod which you struck the river and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock in Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. So he called the name of the place Massa and Meribah, because of the contention of the children of Israel, and because they tempted the Lord, saying, It is the, is the Lord among us or not? Moses has two questions. The first one is, Why do you contend with me? Sometimes when I talk with people who are not necessarily churchgoers or what I consider uh, uh, born-again Christian, they will say things like, the word, the Bible, is so restrictive. Uh, you make religion so hard, they say. And I say something like Moses said there. Your fight's not against me, it's against God. <laughs> Man, sinful man in particular, resents God's laws and commandments. We're rebellious by nature, and we don't like to be told what to do or what's right or what's wrong. Israel is a bunch of untrained, undisciplined rebels, and they're contending and arguing and they're fighting against their leader, their God-given leader, Moses. But it says, and they are tempting the Lord. That's really the second question by Moses. Why do you tempt the Lord? Willful sin should never be part 
of a believer's life. Willful sinning is tempting God. You're tempting God to bring judgment upon you when you willfully, knowingly sin. Now, our God is a God full of mercy. He's full of grace. But some people take that mercy and grace and think it to be that God is soft on sin. And God is a big pushover. And they look lightly upon God extending grace to us, his people. Even though we willfully sin sometimes with full knowledge and we practice sin, God is still loving and forgiving. But you know, there's, there's sins that are accepted within the body of Christ. Um, now, I'm very proud to be a Southerner. I was born in Bessemer. Any of you know where Bessemer is? Bessemer is just south of Birmingham. <laughs> but upon returning to the south, where many of my relatives still live, I've got aunts and uncles and cousins all over the south, I have discovered something uh, that had escaped me. If you start off a sentence or a comment with, bless his heart, you can say anything detrimental that you want to about that person. Bless his heart means, poor old soul, he just doesn't know what's going on. Bless his heart. He gets nasty when he drinks. Bless his heart. He works hard but can't save a dime. So if you want to gossip in a kind way, you preface your comments with, bless his heart. I once had a lady tell me, I accused her of gossiping. It was a relative. <laughs> she said, I am not gossiping. It's the truth. I said, what has that got to do with it? Gossiping is when you say something openly and detrimental and slanderous about another person. That's gossip. Some things you should just simply keep to yourself. And the truth really has nothing to do with the whole matter. It's how are you portraying that person? Envy happens to fall into one of the accepted sins of America. Not only America, the Apostle Paul said, I would not have known envy was sin if God hadn't told me. Consider that now. But back to Moses. Moses is to strike the rock, the rock at Horeb, and water gushes out of a rock. Consider that. Rocks do not hold water. <laughs> God is providing water for Israel through a rock that somehow miraculously will now appear every time they move camp. Here's this rock, and it provides water for them. It follows Israel in their journey, and it gives the people clean, 
pure water to drink. What a blessing. Jesus, uh, during the Feast of Tabernacles in the temple, he cried out with a loud voice, If any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. And he who drinks of the water I give, out of his innermost being, there will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is the water of life. Only Jesus satisfies a thirsty soul or someone that's looking for the reason of why they're here. Israel drinks from this rock that gushes forth water and it symbolizes Christ's satisfying thirst. All right, let's read the second part of chapter 17. Now Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. And Moses said to Joshua, Choose us some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses and Aaron and Ur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hands that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it. And Aaron and Ur approached, uh, supported his hands, rather, one on one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar, and he called its name, The Lord is My Banner. For he said, Because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Israel, up until this point, they have been out in the wilderness for a short period of time, but God has prevented anybody from attacking Israel or uh, fighting against Israel. But the Amalekites now begin what they call guerrilla warfare against Israel. They will attack Israel from the uh, rear areas. They will attack uh, the older people, the weak and the younger people who are trailing behind. And it's a, a vicious kind of warfare. Notice Amalek comes and fights with Israel, forcing Israel into its first battle, its first warfare. Moses, he is now older but when he was young, say around 40, <laughs> it would have been difficult for Moses to be the man of prayer versus the man of war. But Moses is now 80, and he's willing to be a man of prayer. Moses, he commands Joshua, gather some men and go fight Amalek, and tomorrow I will pray. Now, if you know Moses, he's not chickening out. <laughs> Moses had a temper. Moses, you know, slew the Egyptian and so forth. Moses was a man of action. So for Moses to be a man of prayer, 
took a work of God in his heart and life. Moses, he accompanies Aaron and Ur, and they go up to the top of a hill where they can see the battle, and they pray. Moses holds up his hands, a position of prayer to the Hebrews, and hands up, Israel prevails. His hands get tired, Amalek prevails. And this is a clear demonstration uh, of the power that is involved in prayer. Now, that's a catchy term, and we hear that said quite often in Christian circles. I believe in the power of prayer. I believe in the power of who you're praying to. You know, you can pray to uh, a lot of different foreign gods. That's not going to do you any good. You can, you know, you can worship a lot of different things. But when you pray to the living God... You have a lot of strength, a lot of power. This battle, won or lost, is by the prayer of Moses. And Moses has help. He has Aaron and Ur. Moses is making prayer, intercessory prayer for Israel. And he grows tired. And his outstretched arms become heavy and he lets them down. So Aaron and Earth, they prop up Moses' arms and sit Moses on a stone because they're wanting Israel to win this battle. But who is this Amalek that attacks Israel from the rear? And I'm glad you asked that question because that's a good question. Amalek is the grandson of of Esau. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> Brings everything into perspective. Amalek is a type of the sinful flesh. Our flesh fights against the Spirit of God, and it's in each and every one of us. Our flesh will cry out to us. Use your logic. Be sensible here. And our spirit cries out, walk by faith. And they battle and they contend with each other. But how is the battle won? By intercessory prayer. Joshua, he and his army are down fighting with the Malachites. And I say that would have probably been the easy approach. We have a room full of Joshua's here. <laughs> we, we have a, uh, quite a few ex-military guys in our fellowship, and that's good. But Joshua, he's fighting the battle. But the victory, the victory belongs to one man who's up on a hill praying. And it's clearly demonstrated the power that Moses has simply by praying. Prayer, now I can make everyone here feel guilty about prayer because none of us feel like we pray enough. So, you people are not praying enough. I know your quiet times are too short. <laughs> and you can make anyone feel guilty about prayer. 
But prayer is simply aligning myself with the will of God and then praying for God's will to be done. Prayer is communing with God. But intercessory prayer, as we see in Moses, can be hard work. Moses needed help. He needed two assistants. And it's good for us as believers to have somebody that we can call a prayer partner, someone who will agree with us in prayer concerning different issues. We're told to agree with one another in prayer. And Moses had two guys with him, two assistants, that will help him pray. Prayer is our greatest weapon against the enemy. Paul writes in Colossians 4 to continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in prayer with thanksgiving. Now, each and every one of us, we go through things, we encounter battles in life where prayer is the only way of victory in our difficulty or in our fleshly circumstances. God has given us prayer. He has told us to pray. He's told us to pray without ceasing. He told us to keep knocking. God has given us prayer. He wants us to call out to him. He wants us interceding for one another because he wants to show himself strong on our behalf. Sometimes we miss that. God is not holding back your prayer request and your prayer answers to prayer. He wants to answer your prayers, but he wants you to be vigilant in your prayer. We can think that our battles against powers and principalities, which uh, we do battle against, and we can think that our logical mind or our knowledge of the word will prevail for us. Not really. It says continue earnestly in prayer. Be vigilant. Be steadfast in prayer. Pray without ceasing. And not for your only your own battles. Moses, Aaron, and Ur are up on a hill overlooking the battle, and these three men are the only ones in all of Israel at this time that realize the victory for Israel lies within their prayers. They're the only ones that know it. Joshua and his warriors are down there hacking away at the Amalekites <laughs> in his fierce hand-to-hand -hand battle. But Moses is in prayer. When we look at the cross of Christ and all that that entails, where Jesus overcame death in the grave. When was that victory won? 
Well, you remember right before Jesus went to the cross, what went on? Gethsemane. Where Jesus prevailed in prayer. Jesus was praying so intently in Gethsemane that he sweat great drops of blood. That's that's travailing. And he prays to the Father three times, take this cup away from me. Take the cross away from me, if you will, Lord. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I'm so glad he added that. So glad that Jesus was willing to go to the cross. And after Jesus' prayer, he is ready spiritually to go to the cross and suffer for all of mankind. But he had to prevail in prayer. Now, if Moses and Jesus needed to have a time of intent intercessory prayer, then we need to understand where the victory for our battles come from. Be a person of prayer. Prayer only shows that you're dependent upon your loving God. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand and we'll close in prayer. Father, we thank you that you have given us the privilege of prayer. And I thank you, Lord, that we can come to you at any time, in any circumstance, and pray. And, Lord, the beautiful part is you will always hear us. Our prayers are always heard by you, Lord. No prayer is ever spoken voiced that you haven't heard it and Lord we were told if you hear our prayers then we have what we ask for so Lord we ask that one you would purify our hearts and align our will with your will that what we ask for we can receive we don't want to be praying amiss Lord we want to be praying for your will to be done in our lives and in our hearts so Lord this morning, we give your, ourselves afresh and anew. We're grateful, Lord, that you went to the cross and suffered, that we can have forgiveness of sin. So we ask you to forgive our sins. We ask you to make a way for us in our daily lives. Watch over us. Take care of us, Lord. But help us as believers to understand the need we have to just be a praying people, a vigilant praying people, asking you, the Lord of this universe, to watch over us and take care of us. Thank you for that privilege, Lord. So, Lord, be with us. Give us opportunities to just be a good witness and show the world the good work you've done in our hearts and lives. We ask for that, Lord, and we pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.